Victoria and I did not participate in the die-in, uh, <laughs> even though I would have been the most eligible for the die-in because I was the <laughs> oldest person, I think, marching in this protest. <laughs> yeah. I was the closest to the die-in, but I did not participate Literally in the die-in. Literally the closest <laughs> to die. Excellent. <laughs> We're officially less than one year away from the 2020 election. What do the latest polls tell us about how presidential candidates are stacking up? And what did the 2019 elections tell us about how all of this could play out? Plus, a rift between Democrats and Republicans over including climate language in a defense bill. All coming up on Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America. Presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I'm Julia Piper, a contributing editor with Green Tech Media and a senior fellow with the Atlantic Council. We're recording here today from Santa Monica at Brandon Hurlbutt's office. Brandon is, of course, our Democrat on this show. He is a partner at Boundary Stone Partners and former chief of staff at the Department of Energy. How's it going? Hey, Julia. Hello. Uh, and on the line is Shane Skelton, our Republican. He's a partner at consulting firm S2C Pacific and former energy advisor to Paul Ryan. How you doing, Shane? Doing great. I'm excited for today. We already had a full list of stuff to talk about, as you know, and then I've gotten like an email alert in the last 10 minutes that said Hillary Clinton might run for president. And then, you know, the Bloomberg thing yesterday, I'm like dying to hear what you guys have to say about all this. Oh my gosh. Yeah. There is no shortage of news. It's funny because it's like another beautiful sunny day here in California. feels like all's well in the world. And then you turn on the news and it's another turbulent, crazy week in Washington, D.C. Yeah. I mean, our show is focused on climate change, but we are a political show. And right now there's so much, you know, historical action happening, you know, politically in DC. I mean, tomorrow on Wednesday, we start the impeachment hearings and, you know, I'm continue to be amazed by Trump's ability with this like confetti machine that like things get lost. Like the EPA announced it's going to limit science in public health policy. Nobody's talking about that. Trump stole $2 million from his charity. Like that's also not being talked about. So we won't be talking about those things today, but uh, there is lots happening in politics right now across this country that is dwarfing yeah, a lot of things. And I'd, I'd be remiss, Brandon, if I didn't mention that that science proposal has been around for years. And, and what it actually says is that if the, if the data is not publicly available, it can't be used in rulemakings. Now, I'm not qualified to offer a judgment on whether or not that's a good idea and why. But that's very different than saying, if it's science, you can't use it. What they're saying is if the science, if the data can't be made available and it can't be peer reviewed, then it can't be used. Yeah, I think the concern there is that when you put these restrictions on data, it could actually prevent the use of research on pollutants because it relies on confidential health information. So uh, there's more to this story. I'm not an expert on it, but needless to say, there's no shortage of action and it's definitely being dwarfed by the big impeachment elephant in the room. Um, and as you said, it kicks off this week, not totally relevant to what we do, um, but it is, you know, something we can't ignore. Okay, before we dig into some of the latest news, Brandon, I wanted to ask you about the climate protests that happened here in Los Angeles. Since we recorded, Greta Thunberg came to town, the youth climate activist. I know you were there along with Victoria Simon, our producer on this show. So what was that like? Did you see the same energy that you've seen that we've been seeing in the news from past protests? What's happening with the youth climate movement? It was exciting to be there. Um, I was really proud that they were able to put it on. They sort of threw it together at the last minute. So I think... Um, if they had, 
used more time to plan. It could have been even bigger. Uh, but Greta was, you know, terrific as usual. There's a lot of enthusiasm. The march, you know, through the streets was very cool. Victoria, our producer, and I were part of the march. Um, and then we were backstage, and Joaquin Phoenix <laughs> was back there. So we, we tried to do an interview with him, but we didn't have the proper credentials. It was like a whole thing. And we uh, got interfered with our you guys ability. journalists. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so but interfered with our ability to get the interview with him. But he was really uh, terrific to talk to. He wants to, I think, be more active on this issue. And I saw the Joker this weekend, and oh man, that's a what a performance. Yeah. Amazing. Cool. Well, I just wanted to get a, a sense of how that went down. So it's right here in our backyard. Um, and yeah, I guess we'll see how these youth protests continue to unfold. They do seem to be keeping up at a steady pace. All right, let's turn now to the 2019 election. This happened earlier this month, but I think there were some interesting takeaways here for our purposes. Democrats mostly had a good day. So the results came in and Republicans held on to the Mississippi governorship by six points. But in deep red Kentucky, Democrat Andy Bashir defeated Republican incumbent Matt Bevin in the state's gubernatorial race. And he did so by winning the durable Democrat support in Appalachian Eastern Kentucky and new support in the Louisville and Cincinnati suburbs. The suburbs were also key to scoring a big win for Democrats in Virginia, where the party now controls both chambers of the state legislature as well as the governorship. So what does this mean for climate and energy policy? Uh, I'm going to put this to you first, Brandon, but I do want to note that uh, Matt Bevin, the Republican in, in Kentucky, has not actually uh, conceded yet. Also notable that while the Democrat won the governorship in Kentucky, Republicans actually flipped two other state positions, attorney general and secretary of state. So a net loss technically for Democrats there. But over to you, Brandon, any thoughts on what those two key races mean for climate and energy? In Virginia, the Democrats now have uh, control of the state legislature and the governor's office. So where we've seen that happen in several other states in the last couple of years, those states have passed aggressive climate policies. And I think we'll see the same thing in Virginia. For one, they're going to now join the regional cap and trade uh, alliance among several northeastern states. And, and I think there will be reforms uh, regarding uh, Dominion, the utility there, where uh, I think currently it's difficult to do third-party leasing and stuff for residential solar. So I think there will be a lot of changes in Virginia that will promote climate-friendly policies. I'm very excited to see that. I want to hear what Shane has to say about Kentucky. Very interested in his, you know, thoughts on that. Um, and I've been saying I'm so scared that Trump's not going to leave office, even if he loses. Like this Kentucky, you know, you know, governor is now like contesting all this. But Shane's been reassuring me. So uh, definitely, <laughs> maybe he can communicate some of his thoughts on that to our general audience because um, I've been kind of freaking out about it. Ooh, there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. Um, so on the, you know, I think Brandon's hundred percent right that, um, Virginia is really, I think, you know, mostly what's worth talking about, um, from my own, at least personal perspective, um, the Kentucky thing is nothing. I mean, as you said, Julia, a couple of Republicans won statewide elections. Uh, Matt Bevan is one of the most disliked, um, human beings on earth based on what I've read. I mean, I, I don't know the, the, the man personally, but, um, it doesn't seem to me that as a Republican, I would say, hey, you know, Matt Bevins, who I want to hang my head on. And if he can't win, then, then I'm nervous. So I don't, I don't that doesn't concern me at all. Kentucky doesn't worry me uh, as a state that Republicans need to be worried about. Virginia is interesting because um, Virginia, you know, I always thought of and maybe incorrectly so. But the numbers sort of reflected that as a as a state that um, was sort of the conservative alternative to Maryland. If you lived in the D.C. suburbs and even though the D.C. suburbs were never very conservative, the state, you know, throughout was conservative enough that it was still a state where your vote counted. You know, I always thought if I 
lived in Maryland and I voted, it didn't really matter. Now, of course, the irony is that Maryland has a Republican governor um, and Virginia is is 100 percent Democrat. So I think if, if you're a Republican running for office anywhere, not just in Virginia, but anywhere, you got to look at what happened in Virginia. And I think you have to look at some of the countywide elections in, in, in Pennsylvania, another swing state where Republicans uh, got beat up pretty bad in some in some counties and, and, and local races where they usually prevail. So I guess the headline to me is not concerning, Kentucky, whatever. Um, I'm very concerned about a trend that I see coming in states that are, you know, red states or purple states where Republicans have had a lot of success uh, in the suburbs and otherwise. And I, I don't know what the path forward is if we continue to lose these types of races. If it's a one-off, you know, whatever. Um, but, uh, you know, Eric Cantor, who was just a fantastic uh, Republican representative in Virginia, got beat from the right in a primary, you know, not very long ago. And that seat's now in Democratic hands. So I'm just not, I'm not sure how to read this stuff. I wouldn't be surprised to see, you know, 100% clean energy legislation in Virginia uh, because of uh, the elections now. But Shane, I wanted to ask you, uh, do you think the evil dark lord of the Sith, McConnell, is now in jeopardy uh, in Kentucky? And like, would climate be uh, an issue that he'd be vulnerable on? Um, so I don't think so. And sorry, that reminds me, I missed a couple of your points, but I don't think so. I think, first of all, um, Senator McConnell, Leader McConnell, has proven himself to be incredibly, incredibly politically savvy, uh, politically durable. I would not in any way, shape or form align, you know, his good fortune um, with with Adam Matt Bevan. I don't think climate and clean energy is going to be an important issue in any Kentucky statewide election. Virginia, as you said, is very different. Um, part of me is, you know, a little bit excited that we might, you know, Virginia will join Ridgie, uh, which they've you know been stopped from doing very sort of nerdy one off. But basically, Republicans in the legislature created uh, an amendment or not an amendment, but a provision in the state budget that prohibited um, Governor Northam from entering the regional greenhouse gas initiative. So I think some cool uh, statewide policy will occur in Virginia. And as someone who likes, you know, clean energy and and wants to see um, some climate action, that's good. But I, I just sort of wish we could do those things with Republicans and Democrats instead of creating this sort of boomerang hyperpartisan atmosphere. And then, Brandon, touching on something you said earlier because I didn't respond to it was, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I know this is going around on the left. I could not envision a scenario where a president, any president, including President Trump, was credibly beat at the ballot. I don't mean credibly, I mean beat at the ballot box um, in the electoral system and stays in office. And I think if anyone ever tried to do that, all the authority and all the power and all the resources that they that that a president has would be, you know, totally wiped out from underneath. I just can't imagine the entire bureaucracy, even the appointed bureaucracy, the U.S. government supporting any president who lost an election uh, remaining in office. I mean, as you know, there is no bigger threat to democracy than that. And I, I don't envision President Trump trying to do that, but I also can't imagine that any effort like that would ever, uh, would ever get any traction. We'll have to replay this in a year. <laughs> wow. You're really going to a dark place, Brandon. Uh, what is interesting is that some of the polling we'll get into shortly shows that Trump could actually lose the popular vote by an even greater margin than in 2016 and still win the election because of the Electoral College. So I could see that scenario, perhaps just staying in office would be a whole other matter. I do want to say one more thing about Kentucky, because we talked about impeachment proceedings um, continuing this week and with the public hearings. And what was interesting is that in Kentucky, you know, local politics still won the day. It, the, the national rhetoric, as partisan as we are now, people still voted based on what they wanted from their local politician. It was a, a narrow victory for the Democrat. But, you know, I think that's still relevant to point to. 
Also, the reason that Matt Bevin lost was because of his uh, reforms to education, budget cuts, low pay for educators. We've seen this in several states and also proposing to change Medicaid and, and restrict expansions there. So those are key policies. And we see those kinds of themes coming up in, say, the Green New Deal, things people want health care. And so is the Green New Deal a concept that could step in and maybe rally some of those voters? Something to think about. Uh, Democrats, some of these communities are also typically coal communities, and they are struggling again with, with health care. And some of those those communities support Trump, but voted Democrat, and in fact have actually voted locally for Democrats for a long time. They call themselves Kentucky Democrats. They don't necessarily see, according to, to the reporting I've read, uh, a Washington Democrat looking out for them, but they have have historically voted Democrat. So that could actually be an opening for the Democratic Party if it gets its messaging and its policies together and, and finds a way to appeal to that community. So I think when you get a little deeper, you can find some interesting nuance in the Kentucky race. Yeah, I would say, though, Julia, on that point and, and sort of zooming out a little bit when you talk about the Green New Deal, we've discussed that you know, ad nauseum on this podcast, so I'm not going there at all. But I think we can all agree that regardless of what you think it is, it's considered a progressive sort of policy. And you know, you pointed to some other polling that we've all looked at from, from New York Times and, and Siena College, which talk about you know voters, Democratic primary voters in Arizona, Florida, Michigan, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin – States that are going to be critically important to any presidential election, preferring a mo moderate presidential nominee who would seek common ground with Republicans. And so I think what would be very scary to do is to say, I mean, if you're Democrats, I don't actually care. But if you're Democrats, what would be scary to do is say, hey, we won Kentucky. Like, we're untouchable. Let's push this, you know, hyper progressive platform. I don't know that that's going to play out well for them in, in, in several other states. And, and Agreed. But I think my point there is not so much to tout the Green New Deal and progressive policies full stop, but it shows that there is... Forget about your party. There is a pain point here. People are looking for better healthcare programs. Teachers are looking for better benefits and salaries. The coal miners in that state were protesting for literally months on the train tracks following the bankruptcy of the company Black Jewel, uh, demanding better uh, pensions or demanding to get their pensions and healthcare. So there's a problem there that some politician could step up and fix. I don't know which party that's going to be, but clearly there's a pain point and it's not totally unaligned with some of the things Democrats have been talking about recently. Is the Green New Deal the right framing? Is the progressive policy framework the right one? I don't know, but it, there's just something to that. I know we've referenced the New York Times poll, uh, but there was another poll by a very reputable source, uh, the Kaiser Family Foundation and Cook Political Report, which is a nonpartisan entity. And it polled in the battleground states, it polled the Green New Deal, and it showed very popular support for it, over 50% in each of the battleground states. Well, let's go back to the New York Times and Siena College poll, because it's actually generated a lot of news um, recently. And one of the points there was as something we saw verified in this 2019 election that the suburbs are going Democrat. So that's uh, the areas around Philadelphia, Virginia, uh, and around Washington, D.C. We know this now verified by reality. But there were some troubling signs for Democrats. Despite low national approval ratings and the specter of impeachment, this is according to the New York Times, President Trump remains highly competitive in battleground states, likeliest to decide his reelection. Across the six closest states that went Republican in 2016, he trails Joe Biden by an average of two points among registered voters, but stays within the margin of error. Trump leads Elizabeth Warren by two points among registered voters. The poll showed Bernie Sanders deadlocked with the president among registered voters, but trailing among likely voters. So uh, 
that's kind of a toss up. There was also data that showed that uh, Warren is not particularly popular. There's some issues among Democrats uh, that suggest that her ideology and gender um, could hurt her. There's an issue of likability around her. So a lot of different ways to look at these numbers, but it didn't come out super great for Democrats. Well, and Brandon, on that point, I'd love to get your view on this because I know you've worked both, you know, inside and outside on the campaigns and in the government. But Democrats, you know, Republicans had pretty solid control of Washington and Democrats had a lot of success in the 2018 elections campaigning on what Nancy Pelosi was calling, you know, kitchen table issues or, or pocketbook issues. But some of the issues that both you and Julia have, you and Julia have addressed today here, which is health care, which is education. Now, my question is, do you think that by getting elected and spending two years first investigating Russia and then moving on to Ukraine and all this sort of stuff, all the oxygen has been sucked out of the room and it's all focused on President Trump. Do you think Democrats have done what they need to do to tell not just Democratic voters, but, you know, middle of the ground, swing voters, moderate voters, hey, we weren't lying to you. We cared about health care. We cared about climate. We cared about the environment. We cared about education. We just didn't have time to do it. Um, do you think that's going to work? I think right now for Democrats, it's it's been very tough to break through in the news cycle. Um, the confetti machine that we talked about that Trump, I mean, Trump dominates the news, you know, in such a pervasive way. Um, it is, you know, I, I, most, there's a lot of democratic voters, people who intend to vote, uh, in the, you know, in the primary who don't know who Elizabeth Warren is or many of the other candidates other than Joe Biden. So we'll see what happens. I mean, if you're Donald Trump right now, and you're getting beat in these battleground states by Joe Biden, and it's basically a toss-up with these other candidates who haven't really been able to get their message out. Once you're the nominee and you get all this attention, you know, I mean, Barack Obama, when we won Iowa, I mean, everything changed after we won Iowa. There's, you get this spotlight, you know, where you're able to do that speech in front of the whole country and present this message. Uh, that really changed things for us. And so... Um, many of these other candidates haven't had that opportunity yet. Um, but Donald Trump is about to have an impeachment hearing against him and we'll see how those things change. Those numbers have moved pretty dramatically just in the last couple of weeks before the hearing has even taken place. What's going to happen when all these credible, you know, you know, veterans and, and national security expertise, you know, experts who are not partisan basically say the president abused his power and extorted, you know, from another country to, you know, use his power against a political rival. I think we're talking about two different things here. There's, they are related. Uh, one is President Trump and the impeachment proceeding and what that means for the presidential election and how the Democratic contenders compare to him at the, again, presidential level. And then Shane's point, I think, was getting it to the Democratic Party overall, which could get into maybe more local races around, are they being seen as leaders? Are they doing their jobs day to day? And I do think there's a general frustration among voters that bills aren't moving through Congress. And that's not all Democrats' fault. In fact, we know that the Republicans still control the Senate. But and how that's House. being per perceived will be important because I do think what's working against Democrats purely from a messaging standpoint is that they heard about the Mueller probe and now they're hearing about the impeachment proceeding. And it does feel like since Ch President Trump took office, there's been some kind of investigation. 
This is just what I'm like hearing from other reporting on the ground. So Democrats may not like that, but unfortunately that is, I think, what's resonating with some communities. I mean, that I think yeah, is... He also has a historically low approval rating. Yeah. I mean, this is doing damage. Right. I, I will also say that in this New York Times-Siena College poll in those battleground states, uh, most of the voters there oppose impeaching and removing Trump, 52 to 44%, but they support the congressional investigation 52 to 44%. So that's interesting. It makes sense. Let's get the facts out before they make up their minds. Right. right? Yeah. So a lot of layers there. Um, What was also in this poll was that I don't think Medicare for all polled particularly well. So talking about getting to the nuts and bolts of policy and the Democratic proposals, that is something that could hurt Elizabeth Warren in those swing states. Yeah, Shane, did I answer your question? Maybe I didn't. No, 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 you did. I mean, and I, and I think um, I think that that just that last moment right there, I think Julia summarized it. My question was, yeah, I hear all of what you're saying and the investigation will start to play out in public and, and more information will get out there. And you're right. Political damage has been done. I just wonder if you're one of the people who never really cared about President Trump either way. Maybe you gave him a shot. Maybe you didn't. Uh, maybe you voted against him, but you weren't super against him. What you voted for in 2018 had nothing to do with him. What it, what it had to do with was you know, Nancy Pelosi saying, we'll focus on healthcare, we'll focus on energy, we'll focus on environment, we'll focus on education, we'll focus on your pocketbook issues. And I'm wondering, do you now, that voter, feel like those those promises were, were kept? And I, and I think you were right. I think what you said was exactly right, was who knows? <laughs> the, the news cycle is always about Trump. Who knows what they're hearing and what they're not? Yeah. I mean, I think Democrats would love to focus on those issues. But, you know, when a reporter asks you about impeachment or the scandal of the day, you know, it's tough to not acknowledge that. Um, so it is a tight it is a it is a delicate balance that Democrats, you know, have have to walk. My view on 2020 so far to just take a step back and look at this race. My biggest conclusion so far is that there is a generational divide, even within the Democratic Party. And so you have young people that are calling for big change, and that includes massive attention to climate change. And then you have older voters, you know, even within the Democratic Party, who are scared of big change and who aren't thinking about climate change that much. So the question is, you know, uh, who's going to prevail? Because in the past, older voters are reliable voters and young voters are not. Uh, but you look at this race in, in Tennessee, the, the mayor of Knoxville, a Democrat was just elected there. She was swept in by youth vote and she ran on an environmental, strong environmental platform in Tennessee, a Republican state, and she won. So I don't know who's going to prevail in this debate, but it seems to me like when it boils down to millennials and baby boomers are sort of like at odds, even within the Democratic Party, on how they view beating Trump and what kind of change they want. Um, And you're starting to see this acknowledged with this like, okay, boomer meme, you know? It's like really starting to play out. And I'm in Generation X, like we're we're like in the middle and (laughs) we're never even going to have a president. It's going to go from a baby boomer to a millennial at some point and we'll just be locked out of the White House forever. (laughs) Irrelevant generation. Uh, no, that's super interesting. That's why I was kind of wondering at the beginning of the show, like how did the youth protest go here in LA? And if that was any indication of the momentum among youth voters, it's so hard to tell. A protest doesn't necessarily equate to who's going to show up at the polls, but I had seen coverage that it was maybe smaller than some of the other protests. And so I was just curious what that meant, but there's so many factors that go into organizing one of those gatherings. And I do know that 
the there was sort of a die-in, I think, at the LA protest and was taking a more like critical view of even Gavin Newsom, the Democratic governor here. So you definitely saw the youth movement going even more progressive, even more left, challenging the Democratic Party. So I'm curious where that energy is going to go. And I'm curious how it's going to translate at the voting booth um, among at least the young people that can vote. Victoria and I did not participate in the die-in, uh, <laughs> even though I would have been the most eligible for the die-in because I was the <laughs> oldest person, I think, marching in this protest. Yeah. I was the closest to the die-in, but I did not participate Literally in the Literally the closest <laughs> to dying. Excellent. <laughs> Let's talk about Michael Bloomberg's campaign. So as our listeners may know, billionaire businessman Michael Bloomberg is again considering an entry into the presidential race. He would run as a Democrat. The ex-New York mayor uh, is apparently filing paperwork in Alabama, but unclear if this campaign will really have any life. Uh, he hasn't announced his decision officially as of our recording date, uh, but it apparently stems from his concern that the current field of Democratic candidates is not well positioned to beat Donald Trump. And we've been talking about this polling data which shows that it is tight like Biden barely edging out Trump right now in key swing states Warren being behind him so Brandon what do you think is there any hope for a, a Bloomberg presidency I don't know if he'll end up running we'll see um, I do think amongst the DC establishment there is dissatisfaction with um, the Democratic candidates uh, especially the leaders because there is satisfaction th there no there's dissatisfaction because it's sort of this Goldilocks problem. You're either too young, too old, or too liberal, <laughs> and they want um, a better choice. So I think that is why people they like need Mike a Generation Xer. <laughs> <laughs> right. Brandon Hurlbut, 2020. Oh no, I would not pass that bet. Um, <laughs> so the uh, leading candidates in the primary, the Democratic primary, are either too young, too old, or too liberal, uh, and that's why I think there's some calls for uh, getting some new people in the race. Governor Deval Patrick apparently is considering this. Um, and we have seen this before in the 2008 campaign that I worked on for Obama. Uh, Fred Thompson uh, was this like white knight. If you remember Law and Order, he was like a senator from Tennessee. He was on like, who doesn't like Law and Order? Everybody loves that show. Right. And like he was going to come in and save the, the Republican primary and his campaign sort of went nowhere. So we have seen these sort of calls for like a white knight in the past that didn't really work out. Um, but, you know, Michael Bloomberg, he is definitely a leader on climate. I mean, there's a lot of this antipathy about billionaires in the Democratic Party right now. Uh, but if you're a billionaire uh, like Michael Bloomberg, he's given back. I mean, his philanthropic uh, giving on uh, climate, he led the Beyond Coal campaign. Uh, he's been the Sierra Club campaign, Sierra Club campaign. He's been very active on anti-gun, you know, legislation. So he has uh, been a leader. He's, he was you know, a successful businessman, of course, built his empire, uh, was a public servant, mayor of the, of the largest city in this country, you know, unlike where you have to, you know, Pete Buttigieg got like 8,000 votes, right? I mean, he was mayor of a very different you know, city. And so I, he has the credentials. And when I talk to people about this, you know, about Michael Bloomberg, I never hear about that. It's everybody wants to be a pundit right now. You know, you say, what do you think about Bloomberg? And they say, well, he can't win the primary. He'd be great in the general and blah, 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 blah. But, uh, you know, if he spends his money to bring more attention on climate, I think that's a good thing. He can still do that and run his Beyond Carbon campaign because he has $50 billion. I mean, he makes Tom Steyer, another billionaire, look like poor <laughs> compared to, <laughs> you know, the billions that he has. So I yeah. think he can do both. Whether his campaign goes anywhere, um, you know, we'll see. 
but uh, I don't know, even know if he'll end up running. But this is the crazy thing about him is he's a, you know, an urban figure, mayor of New York City. This is the thing I thought would actually hurt Trump in the end, but didn't end up hurting him so much was that, you know, how would that person necessarily resonate with rural voters or even suburban voters across the country, just purely on a lifestyle basis? Also, a lot of the youth movement and progressives uh, point to the fact that Bloomberg is almost like too wealthy. I mean, he's so out of touch was a point that Bernie Sanders made at his campaign rally saying, you know, he, he's not going to let Bloomberg buy his way into this election. So I think he's got an uphill road. Shane, do you have any thoughts on Bloomberg entering the race? No, Julia. Luckily for me, I don't really have to participate in the Democratic primary. I would say, though, it, it does remind me at how unclear it is to me of what the Democrats even want. I mean, you hear all this talk about wanting to do something with climate Bloomberg isn't someone who came out with the Green New Deal, but he's someone who spent his life and his money like trying to solve a problem. And I would say having executing some practical changes on the ground and, and helping reduce emissions nationwide through some of the campaigns that he's put on. So I, I don't know what the Democrats want. I'm comfortable acknowledging I don't know what the Democrats want, but it feels like there's something wrong with everyone because no one's progressive enough. And I don't know where that ends for them, but but that's not really my problem. I do think from a climate and, and energy perspective, which is what we talk about, he's shown that he's taken the time to invest in technologies, to invest in, you know, sort of shoe leather on the ground campaigns and to really put thought into what works, what doesn't work, uh, what kind of R&D can we do to find out what the best solutions are moving forward. I think that's the way people should think about solving the climate problem, but I don't think there's any appetite for any sort of practical, you know, solution uh, finding on the left right now. It's funny, Julia, you sent that article from Vox saying that Bernie Sanders is going to focus his Iowa campaign on climate, and that's the way he thinks he's going to win Iowa. So the candidates in the Democratic primary that are making the most of climate change are, if Bloomberg runs, the two billionaires and a socialist. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> So yeah, I guess people don't know exactly what Democrats want. That is what this next year is going to be all about. Uh, I think it's notable that Bernie Sanders is focusing his Iowa campaign uh, on climate change, campaigning with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who authored the Green New Deal. And his, campaign's, uh, his campaign is extending its $1.3 million ad buy in the state of Iowa to do a television spot on the Green New Deal, talking about Sanders' $16 trillion vision for a climate-conscious economy. So here's a clip from that ad. For generations, Iowa has fed the nation. Now, with the world facing a climate crisis, Iowa is poised to power America with clean energy. Only Bernie Sanders has a plan bold enough to avert the climate crisis and put Iowa first. As president... So on this topic, a Quinnipiac University poll of Iowa voters found that Democrats care about global warming, but it's not their top priority. 34% of likely caucus attendees still listed health care as the most important topic, with climate coming next at 24%. So some data there to figure out where climate fits into the race, what that means for Bloomberg, for Steyer's campaigns, Warren, we will yet to see who emerges as the real climate candidate. I think Bernie is kind of pulling ahead on that front, but again, not the top issue for all the Democratic voters. Okay, one last final item is some outrage among Republicans in Washington, D.C., calling out Democrats for their, quote, hypocrisy on climate action. So they are upset that House Energy and Commerce Committee Chairman Frank Pallone has opposed the Use It Act, which is being included in a defense policy bill that's currently under negotiation. 
Now, the Use It Act would, Act would invest $50 million to research carbon capture and utilization technologies that trap carbon from industrial facilities and reuse it for commercial products. Uh, the Washington Examiner reported on this. Uh, and Shane, you shared it, you know, uh, I think expressing frustration that Democrats would not support this Use It Act as part of this uh, defense bill. So explain why you thought this was hypocritical. Yeah, it's just frustrating. You know, I, I'm not going to be here and, and, and make the argument that the Use It Act solves all of our problems and we can pack up and be done. But I think all of us, including you know Michael Bloomberg, who we just discussed, have acknowledged that carbon extracted from energy processes or just from the atmosphere is a good thing. Anytime we can reduce the concentration of carbon in the air, that's a good thing. So this just struck me as odd because Republicans in the in the Senate and or, I'm sorry, Republicans and Democrats in the Senate agreed that this is the way forward. And Republicans in the House are saying this is the way forward. And House Democrats, who are supposed to be the most pro-climate, you know, participants in the in the in the chamber, are, are saying, no, this isn't the right vehicle for it. Now, maybe that's true. Maybe the Defense Act is not the right vehicle for it. But at the end of the day, we're trying to get climate policy done. This is bipartisan climate policy. And I'll, you know, a little tidbit for everyone who hasn't worked in Congress. There's always a number of provisions that are tacked onto a vehicle that would not be within the general purview. That That's not the exception. That's the rule. And so it just seems like some cheap excuse making. And I'm not sure why House Democrats have decided that they don't want to participate in this particular uh, brand of, of addressing climate. My understanding, and it'll be interesting to walk our listeners through this, because this is uh, an example of like the sort of different world that Washington DC, you know, can sometimes operate in. Um, but in my discussions with the insiders on Capitol Hill, uh, my understanding is that Democrats are wrestling with a tactical question. So the policies in the use it act, uh, you know, more nuclear, more, uh, carbon capture sequestration are, things that Republicans will agree to on climate. So the tactical question is, do you play that card now and get that bill done and you make some progress on climate change? Now, not enough, not at the scale that we need, but something is better than nothing. And it creates maybe some momentum for the future. Or do you wait till 2021 when there could be a more favorable political environment for Democrats where you might have a Democratic president, you might have a Democratic Senate and House, and then you could do a larger climate legislation with and attract Republican support, get bipartisan support with uh, the carbon capture and nuclear policies incorporated into that. And that would be a way to incentivize Republicans to support the bill. So I think they're wrestling with the tactics on that. And Shane, love to hear your perspective on like, is that regular? Is that something that you, you saw on Capitol Hill a lot? It seems like a lot is transactional and they're trying to figure out, you know, how do we get votes and you play the, you know, your best card right now or wait to a, a more favorable environment? No, I mean, look, you're hundred percent right that there's always horse trading, especially on large bills that are going to get across the finish line. People trade priorities and, and districts are, are taken care of in certain ways. And I'm not going to pretend like that's not what typically happens. I think what's frustrating me here is we've been told um, for a long time by scientists, but also by politicians, that this is not like other things. We don't have any time. So now we have two years to wait because of political convenience. I think this is the kind of stuff that most Americans hate, Republicans and Democrats alike. And so if this problem doesn't demand a solution, let's just drop it. Let's move on and let's do other things. If it does demand a solution, delaying a solution for two years uh, at a political expedience, for me, just rubs me the wrong way. So Shane, let me ask you this. 
if the Democrats and Republicans work together to pass this piece of legislation, the use it, use it legislation that promotes carbon capture and nuclear, and then you sort of use that, we'll call it Republican candy. And then in 2021, there is a more favorable Democratic uh, environment, and they want to pass a larger bill on, you know, that includes renewables, energy storage, electric vehicles, uh, with massive investment, stuff like, you know, you mentioned in the past, Senator Schumer's op-ed. So along those sort of lines, then without carbon capture and sequestration and nuclear as a part of that bill, because you've already, you know, used that Republican candy, you know, right now, could, would Republicans support that bigger piece of legislation without those Republic, without the Republican candy? In I mean, it? Based on my experience, probably not, but I would go one step further in saying that they probably wouldn't support it anyway. So I think it's, you get something or you get nothing. I mean, do I think that that Senator Barrasso, who's you know the the chair of the the Energy Committee, not not the Energy and Natural Resource Committee we've talked about, but the chair of uh, EPW, which is um, Environment and Public Works actually, which has jurisdiction over over the Clean Air Act, would he support a bill that includes ninety nine percent of things that he hates uh, to add the Use It Act? I think the answer is definitively no. So to me, the question is. Do we want to make progress or don't we? Now, I would love if, if we lived in a world where you could package a bill together that could get 60 votes in the Senate with some Republicans and some Democrats. I just don't view that as being likely. So I think if our goal is let's wait till 2021, let's get a good bill that tackles a lot of the things you and I have agreed upon. So not just carbon capture and sequestration, but grid modernization and you know other sort of clean energy tax credits and EV credits. That, that would be great. That would be fantastic. I wouldn't hold my breath for two years um, in hopes of that happening because I'm just not convinced that'll get 60 votes and two years is a long time to wait to find out. All right, we'll leave it there and move to our final segment of the show. All right, it's time to wrap it up with Say Something Nice where our Democrat and Republican co-hosts say something redeeming about the opposing political party. Shane, let's have you go first. So mine goes back to uh, someone that I've actually said something nice about before, uh, Senator Heinrich from New Mexico. Our listeners may remember he was on an earlier um, episode of our show, and he was actually my Say Something Nice a few months prior to that uh, for a public lands bill that he introduced. But in this particular instance, uh, the senator introduced uh, a bill that would create tax credits for transmission lines, the idea being to help get some of that renewable energy from states like his in New Mexico to areas where the the grid is 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 um, you know distributing energy that maybe is is less carbon free or, or less clean than that, um, the bill is not out yet. He's talked about it, and I'm not sure exactly how the policy is going to flesh out. But I think it's so important that someone and and he's someone who has a background you know in uh, the utility world, so he understands this stuff, is talking about not just tax credits for generation resources, which I'm not against, but I mean someone's got to talk about the grid modernization piece and all and all the money that that's going to cost, and so. Uh, while transmission uh, lines are not the same as distribution lines, and I favor you know a lot of investment on the distribution side, I am very glad that there is a U.S. senator um, introducing the concept that hey, these credits should be available to the the infrastructure, the actual grid, not just the generation. Great, Brandon. My say something nice this week is about one of my least favorite Republicans, uh, but I'm going to give him a shout out this week. Um, Senator Marco Rubio from Florida, uh, he joined the Senate Climate Solutions Caucus, uh, which is a big deal because um, you sort of had the usual suspects of Republicans so far, like Senator Murkowski. She's known to be climate friendly, uh, you know, as a Republican. Uh, but Marco Rubio is, you know, 
correct me if I'm wrong, Shane, has like serious conservative credibility. Uh, and so for him to join this Climate Solutions Caucus is a big step for that caucus. Uh, and I think the story was broken by Josh Siegel from the Washington Examiner, one of our favorite, you know, reporters from a conservative publication. I don't know why you didn't get this scoop, Julia, but uh, Josh got it. So I don't know what you've been doing. Jeez, thanks. Uh, I'm not a DC uh, Hill reporter day in, day out, unfortunately. So that would be why. <laughs> uh, well, and, and Brandon, I like your say something nice for two reasons. One, I didn't know that. Um, so that's got to go down in, in my notes. But two, you're right about Senator Rubio. And interestingly, he's been going through sort of a reformation lately. I've read a lot of the stuff that he's written and speeches that he's given. And he has started to think about some of the questions that we've discussed, which is, what does it mean to be a Republican? What is the ideological sort of undergirding of what conservatism is? And are those the principles that we're executing on right now? Are we pursuing policies consistent with the dignity of work and, you know, giving everyone a fair shake and making sure we take care of our environment and, and all that sort of stuff? So I'm very excited to see, you know, where this all plays out for him, because we, we have had a dearth of the sort of, in my view, uh, more traditional conservative thought leaders in elected office in recent years. Well, that seems to be a theme throughout this episode is looking at how each party is going to ultimately meet the voters' needs and who is doing that best and how they rise above the political fray to deliver. And I think that's going to be the crux of this uh, this coming up upcoming election. We've got one year to go. We are now within the one-year countdown, which is kind of crazy. feels like that's both really far away and really close. So we'll leave it there for now. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Of course, you can always find Political Climate on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, almost all the podcasting platforms. Go there and subscribe. And please leave us a review if you are on Apple Podcasts. We'd love for you to do that. Thanks to Victoria Simon, our producer, for helping us with this show, as always. And with that, we will see you next week. <laughs>